That night, the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Welcome to The Miserable Offenders. My name is Jesse Nigro, and I'm joined today by Andrew Brazier. Hey, this is Andrew Brazier. Uh, Glad to have you on the show with us. Absolutely. And uh, Andrew, you and I and Father Isaac have been... uh, reading through this essay, The Spirit of Anglicanism, by Paul Elmer Moore. And it looks like we are ready to move on to section Roman numeral three. Anything you'd like to declare before we uh, jump in? Uh, I would say that it does a good job of continuing to run this thread of the middle way, the via media. And uh, so anyone who's listening, just be on the lookout or the listen for developing that thing absolutely um as paul elmer moore gives this justification for why he included uh who and what he did in this um uh, collection of works called anglicanism and is a sort of a compendium of 17th century anglican writers and writings um we can sort of use the logic that he uses and sort of see how that relates to what makes Anglicanism what it is. And we can, we will be more than happy to share with you, I'm sure, um, the points we agree with and the ones we disagree with too. So on that note, I think I'll take this uh, first paragraph and the little quotation that follows and let's see if they, if uh, Moore has anything interesting to say here. Such oh, Roman numeral three. Such quite clearly is the external origin of the Via Media, which was to become the very charter of the Church. It may have begun as a protest against the political claims of Rome, on the one side, and the Genevan theories of state on the other. It may have looked at the outset like a shift to avoid difficulties, a modus vivendi, at the best, a middle way as commended by Dunn because more convenient, quote, more convenient and advantageous than that of any other kingdom, end quote. But behind it all, the way the... All the while lay a profounder impulse pointing in a positive direction and aiming to introduce into religion and to base upon the, quote, light of reason, end quote, that love of balance, restraint, moderation, measure, which from sources beyond our reckoning appears to be innate in the English temper. Thus, Hooker, at the inception of the great work which opened our era, carried this principle up to that first eternal law, which is no less than the nature of God himself, and then showed how from it depends as a golden chain the second eternal law, stretching down, 
link by link to the humanly devised polity of church and state. Here's the quotation. If therefore it be demanded why, God having power and ability infinite, the effects notwithstanding of that power are all so limited as we see they are, the reason hereof is the end which he hath proposed, and the law whereby his reason hath stinted the effects of his power, in such sort that it doth not work infinitely, but correspondently unto the end for which it worketh. Even all things, and there's a Greek word I don't know, in most decent and comely sort, all things in measure, number, and weight. Thoughts there, Andrew? You know, it's interesting how he... Uh, I really like this chain that, that he sets up, mm-hmm. talking about the first eternal law, going no less the nature of God himself, and he's going to develop this a little bit later in this section as we read further. And then showing the chain going from the nature of God, the triunity uh, of God himself, to the human polity of church and state. Mm-hmm. So going down, not just to the individual human of you and me, but going down to the greater group that we belong to, whether it be the nation state or the uh, the church proper. Um, I think that's interesting. It's a connection that's not typically made since we, and I say we, in my background here in the Deep South, I don't think you share something similar, Jesse, of, of the typical uh, evangelical church down the road. Mm-hmm. It's very much more of an individualized context that you hear Christianity, which is not wrong, but it's just that's the main focus instead right. of this overarching nation that we belong to and this overarching uh, church proper, not the local small church, but the church universal. I think really he's talking about the church within your your state, your nation that we belong to. So it's an interesting chain and it's a way that we don't think anymore, at least in my neck of the woods. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, It it almost sounds like uh, Aquinas' analogy of being right where god like we all have being only as an analogy by participation in in god's being who is both the definition and the author and source of being it's like you take the the source of everything and you you draw a tiny little line down to you know that that um strikes you know strikes down to to human level and that somehow, you know, the things that we do have the, their reason and their and their logic because of um, that connection to the reason and logic that comes from God, which is, uh, as you say, absolutely not, um, in my experience, the justification for the polity of the local evangelical church, right? There's no, and this is the order, the divine order of God that, you know, that we have received, Mm -hmm. and therefore uh, this person should be leading a Bible study and not this person, etc., you know? It's just simply uh, not the way things are are discussed, at least in my experience. And you brought, Um, that's a great, great comparison to bring it out, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, because it, it made me have a thought that's about to, to flee from my mind, <laughs> but uh, the fact that how can we know ourselves, which is the Greek thought of knowing thyself in philosophy, mm-hmm. but how can we truly know ourselves if we do not know our maker, our creator, if we do not understand the triune God? Not, well, 
strike that. We'll never understand the triune God. But if we do not know the triune God mm. in this relationship, this divine human uh, relationship, then how can we ever know who we are to be, who we are called to be in our vocation? And, right. Then uh, that also kind of goes to, I mean, it's a little bit of a, uh, a segue or a uh, off the beaten path of what we're just discussing, but it kind of goes to not only the polity of, of the universe that you have, the triune God who oversees all, and then the golden chain goes down to man, to the institution of state, which we have created to govern ourselves, and God is also over. And then also the God-created institution of the church. But then it kind of goes to uh, church polity, and it kind of ref- you know, reflecting. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say this, but just kind of drawing it from him. It makes more sense as to, you know, you're Anglican, why do you have bishops? Well, this polity we have in the divine human organism that's the church is a reflection of what we see uh, in reality in terms of, you know, God is head of all. We have a bishop who is certainly not God, but is there to reflect this position of teaching and authority. And from there comes the several parishes uh, that are under his uh, purview. Yeah, and you could say that that those that sort of model or form of authority is maybe analogous to um, this divine example, and I think most uh, evangelicals would admit that it, at the very least that say the father as the head of the household is is very similar in that way. And so it's not as though um, they don't make similar kinds of analogous comparisons or justifications. It's just that I, they're, you know, probably have historic reasons for not doing so when it comes to the polity of the church. And I think, um, yeah, that's a great point, Andrew. And I would, I would add to it that, you know, obviously Anglicans uh, have had different opinions and even options available to them as to the exact nature of the authority of bishops, which, you know, being the Episcopal Church in a number of places around the world or known for that specific polity is certainly um, part of our identity. But whether or not we, we say that, well, to have a bishop is, is the mark of being an actual church or not, or or whether it's just a good thing to have as a church, etc. Um, you know, we, we do have those options available to us. And, and I think that's that even um, could be analogous to taking this divine law and um, taking the, you know, receiving the links of the chain, even when it comes to statecraft. There's a sense, I think, in which um, the, the theme to derive from this is there may not be in a hundred percent exactly one way to do this, but we definitely believe that there are certain ways that you shouldn't do it, <laughs> and that and that there you know where there is variety, it is variety of a familial sort of uh, context, you know, within a particular conversation, and there's there's a whole lot that is not on the table because it has no resemblance to this sort of divine economy of, of authority, etc. How does that sound? How am I doing? I think absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a, a great point to be made. And, and I would say to, to those who are not Anglicans who are saying, you know, this, 
You're just trying to make this argument for having bishops somewhere. Well, we all reflect the divine order. It's it's only you know natural for us to do so. You know, um, even mm-hmm. even those who do not believe, you know, the, those who are outside the church, reflect the image of God, obviously, and also reflect the natural order of things. They may devolve, but we all have this reflection of uh, the triune God. And I would say, even in church polity, that for those who don't have a, a uh, Episcopal organization, we still reflect someone being in charge, even at the local parish level. You're going to have a, a head pastor, and then you're right. going to have maybe associate pastors. You're certainly going to have some form of, of elders, and you're still reflecting on a on a microcosm level a smaller version of the bishop surrounded by his presbyters and his deacons. And uh, at the end of the day, it's that threefold, you know, order that's reflecting the uh, the triune God. And we're, we're simply just further down the golden chain as to, you know, how organized, you know, this system is. But at the end of the day, we only know ourselves and we only can reflect what the Creator uh, is. And some of us are, well, we're all broken mirrors. Uh, it's just that some of us are being put back together to try to reflect more fully uh, the God that we worship. Right, yeah, it's one thing to say, boy, you guys are sure making a big deal out of this, or or you guys are always fighting on who's, who's got their polity right, you know, and then there's probably, you know, a family of church uh, traditions that we belong to that maybe are having this kind of argument every once in a while. But um, I think it's another thing to say, and I think this is true, that you can definitely tell um, whether you think that bishops, priests, and deacons is the uh, correct way because of its sort of um, historic precedence in the church or not, you can definitely tell the difference between those who are, you could say, uh, clinging to the links of that chain and those who don't really recognize it at all and yet still um, are attempting to be faithful to what the Bible says, but maybe without uh, any knowledge of a sort of a historic connection and that connectedness. Um, so yeah, I think that's maybe another way to look at it that sort of maybe brings the the points that each of us are making together. But we should uh, we should see what else um, Mr. Moore has to say about chains and uh, other silken strings and pearls. And uh, I, th- I think we get we get lots of uh, strands in, in this uh, in this section here. Okay, we'll pick back up in the next couple of paragraphs. That is the note struck by the master musician, and it gives key to all that follows. We shall find Joseph Hall exalting measures that which guides the celestial bodies in their harmonious courses. And as, quote, the center wherein all, both divine and moral philosophy meet, the rule of life, the governess of manners, the silken string that runs through the pearl change of all virtues, the very ecliptic line under which reason and religion move without any deviation, end quote. And Fuller, who employs the same metaphor of the silken cord through the pearl chain of the virtues, is careful to explain that, quote, moderation is not a halting betwixt two opinions, when the thorough believing of one of them is necessary to salvation, close quote, nor is it mere, quote, lukewarmness, close quote, in matters divine, but a law and an ideal whereupon all a man's soul may be set, even to martyrdom. 
So understood, the principle of measure is at once English and Greek. One is reminded of Aristotle's definition of the ethical mean as both the limited and unlimited. Courage, for instance, in relation to the vices of rashness and cowardice, is a measured avoidance of excess in either direction. But in itself, as a motive of conduct, it has its own direction to which there is no limit. A man cannot be too courageous. There is no such thing as an excess of virtue. Quite consciously, as could be shown by specific passages, the Anglican divines were expanding this Greek precept of ethics into a spiritual law of Christianity. So with that conclusion of looking at Greek precepts and in turning it into a spiritual law of Christianity, what says you, Jesse? <laughs> well, I think it's it's all very interesting. Um, I, You may know one of my uh, interests is in virtue ethics, and um, which in a sort of secular university setting is very often uh, thought of as sort of Aristotelian. But as a Christian, I tend to think that the best uh, virtue ethicists are, are, are the Christians like St. Thomas Aquinas, who uh, received Aristotle's writings um, and really just the parts that made sense within uh, Christianity and sort of saw a, you could say, a pagan natural wisdom and uh, baptized it with uh, a, a supernatural revelation that we have as Christians through uh, sacred scripture. And so I, I, this is all very, very much, uh, I guess, uh, you could say gelling with, uh, <laughs> with, uh, with my own way of thinking. Um, <laughs> because especially this idea of the via media coming from Aristotle, it's funny uh, someone wrote on the Via Media recently at the North American Anglican, and one reader, a uh, a staunch Lutheran, said, "Oh, I'm sick of you Anglicans always claiming the Via Media. Lutheranism was the first uh, Via Media between Geneva and Rome, or something along those lines. And, you know, we were the originals, or whatever." I'm like, "Well, you know, my my reply was that, boy, you know, this idea of a middle way." Uh, is a lot older than the 16th century and older than Christianity even, you know. So it, we maybe don't want to make these hasty claims that uh, uh, to being the first all the time, although I, I know that could be a fun game to play. But, uh, you know, Moore's, <laughs> Moore's comments on the, on the specific Anglican application of this idea as a sort of general mm, kind of English and uh, sort of divine reasoned appeal to moderation or, uh, yeah, the via media, I guess, is interesting to me because that's certainly not, uh, I, w I would say, not... Um, a mainstream feature of this conversation, um, at least from you know my time in, in the university. So I, I'm definitely curious to see how those uh, claims are supported, or, or in what, in exactly what way he means that the Anglican divines expanded this this Greek precept of ethics, as he puts it. What do you think? 
it, it is, yeah, it's quite interesting. It's, it's not a connection that I've ever made before. Uh, I see where he's developing this argument. I, I think it's uh, it's unique. There's certainly, I mean, you know far better than, than I, uh, just the historic nature of uh, the Christian uh, saints, the theologians of the church, and the thinkers of the church. Uh, like you said uh, very eloquently, you know, diving into and, and pulling out from uh, pagan philosophy uh, nuggets and, uh, and wisdom uh, that was blessed and baptized into the church, which from our mm-hmm. earlier conversation, the earlier paragraphs, I would say, is really recognizing that image of God that is, is there within uh, the pagan philosophy and drawing it out. I'm like, yes, this is true, this is right. Let's pull this forward and show how it, it goes back to uh, the Creator and reflects the, uh, not the mindset, but the the nature and the reality and the, uh, the truth of the Christian faith. Uh, I think it's interesting to, to apply it to the Anglican context to show what our divines did in terms of of uh, not necessarily creating the Anglican Church, it was always there, but developing uh, the Anglican Church and, and just seeing where that goes from there. So, yeah, no, it, yeah, absolutely. It, it's uh, it is interesting to see it sort of this principle applied in this particular way, and um, but now that I see it or that he puts it this way, I. I tend to think, huh, well, maybe there's something to this, you know, uh, and, and obviously this project, or I guess this project that he mentions, this whole idea of, of seeking the revelation of God in nature uh, has been called natural theology, and there's a whole tradition, um, certainly from Thomas Aquinas and others, and contemporary writers as well of people who are interested in the natural law and which is this whole project of so to speak of um, what can we humans uh, with reason a God-given reason and and maybe even as Christians with uh, uh, sort of uh, restored reason to some extent um, what can we know about God and who he is? What can we know about the creator through his handiwork? And, you know, someone like Aristotle being a very smart guy who observed creation very carefully, probably more carefully than, than most have, um, is certainly going to have valuable things to say about, um, well, in this case, ethics. Um, and so I think that's this is this is uh, an interesting field of theological research that I happen to be interested in, and it may be of interest to our listeners to learn that this was such an important uh, point for the early Anglican divines. And the other thing, it certainly interests me. So the other thing I'll add before we we go to the next paragraph is that. It's a good point that he makes, and one that I should have... It shouldn't have surprised me as much as it did when I read it. 
just because of the, the nature of the Anglican, uh, not only the divines, but even the initial generation of Anglican reformers, looking back to uh, the Greek fathers, uh, who naturally in turn were looking mm-hmm. to uh, the Greek philosophy that they were baptizing. Of course, Aquinas is a Latin father, but uh, the Anglican uh, reformers were very good at looking at patristic writings and developing themes and showing that the nature of their uh, uh, reform of Catholicism was that of a gentle revision that was steering the church in England back towards the uh, the ancient church and uh, rooting itself in uh, mm-hmm. the philosophy, the thought, and the theology of uh, the original, or I say the original, but the, but the old Latin and Greek fathers. Yeah, I think so. And um, at the very least, it 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 becomes clear that more definitely thinks so. I think he's going to, um, in his high esteem of the Caroline divines, he's also going to sort of show his high esteem of uh, the church fathers and almost see them as as a uh, conciliar court for the Anglican Church and the Anglican tradition sort of the uh, what is it the the authority of the dead as <laughs> as Chesterton would say but but I don't don't want to get ahead of ourselves here I'll uh, I'll continue with the next paragraph the point is and that's kind of a long one so I'll just do that and you can get the the last two there how's that sound okay that sounds good sounds uh, great the point is that though in manners of human expediency, measure, and restraint may seem to result in compromise in the sphere of religion, where ultimate principles are involved, they depend upon a positive choice or direction which is intrinsically different from compromise. And this difference can be illustrated by the heretical and the orthodox attitude towards the primary doctrine of Christianity. Here, the fathers were confronted by the plain fact that the founder of their faith was presented to them by a tradition going back to those who had lived with him, as at once, in some unique manner, both divine and human, both God and man. Reason was thunderstruck by such a paradox. The wisdom of the schools could make nothing of it. Logic could deal with him as God only, or as man only, and indeed as one or the other he did so appear to the docetic or humanitarian philosophy of Gnostics and adoptionists. But theology was bound to discover a path between these two exclusions, and the great heresy, the first to threaten the very existence of Christianity as a religion, was an attempt to explain the via media as a compromise. To the Arians, Christ was neither quite God nor quite man, but a something intermediary, which resembled the natures of both without being purely either. Against this plausible and seemingly reasonable escape between the horns of faith's dilemma, which in fact possessed the virtues neither of reason nor a paradox, The church, by the definition of Chalcedon, simply thrust its way through the middle 
by making the personality of the incarnate so large as to carry with it both natures. Evidently, in this case, at least the principle of measure does not produce a diminished or half-truth, but acts as a law of restraint preventing either one or two aspects of the paradox, paradoxical truth from excluding the other. Nor is the middle way here a mean of compromise, but a mean of comprehension. Wow. He, he just said a lot there. Um, what, are your, what are your first <laughs> just first bit. thoughts, Andrew? <laughs> first thoughts. Um, I would say for the listener who doesn't know um, that the Gnostics were a, a sect of... Uh, I don't want to say they were a sect of Christianity, but they were... They thought they were Christians, I'll put it that way. <laughs> and uh, mm. they, they were varying groups and sects within Gnostics, but uh, the overarching theme is typically they thought they had a secret knowledge that uh, other people did not have and were not privy to. And uh, had right. typically the fundamental thought that what is material is bad, so mm-hmm. the physical world is evil, uh, the spiritual is good, uh, which sadly a lot of American Christianity has that same wavelength um i had that same wavelength until i started diving into church history um and also when you go uh deep into narcissism there's typically a belief that the old testament god uh was an evil god and the new testament god represented by christ was a, a good god so you have this parallel parallel uh dual um god or gods i should say mm-hmm. uh, battling it out and the adoptionist, when you heard that word, the fundamental belief was that uh, typically when Jesus was baptized, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, that he was then adopted as a man and raised up into this God-man-like being. Um, so he was not always eternal. He was not always uh, right. the second person of the Trinity. So if you, I just throw that out there. So if, if you've never heard that before, now you know what those terms are. And so when uh, the author here is, is writing about them, he's running a thread of the via media, and that you can go to either extreme of the Gnostics on one side, having one line of thought, adoptionists on another, and lo and behold, you get this bastardized theology of Arianism, in which, uh, and really that's not historically accurate that Arianism came from these two, but the point the author is making is that with philosophy, if you go to either way on an extreme, you can end up being a heretic. The Arians try to go to the middle and ironically compromise by simply saying that mm-hmm. Jesus is not the God-man, the fully God, fully man, but Jesus is the half-God, half-man. And so the compromise there is kind of is literally splitting the the man and splitting the Godhead and putting the two together. And uh, so sorry for that history lesson. But I think it may help some people listening for the first time. Uh, to see where he's, he's making his point that even with the via media there is some danger and in order to truly or I should say this with a compromise uh, there's a danger of compromising away the truth but to be with the via media to, to follow uh, first council ecumenical council and their definition of who is uh, God who is Christ that Christ is fully human fully man uh, our God is, as he says very beautifully, the incarnate, the Christ, is so large as to carry within him both natures. And 
two things kind of, right? You know, sprung out when I was actually reading it. Now that I gave this history lesson that no one wanted to hear, but uh, is that when it comes to under? I wanted to hear it. <laughs> I appreciate that, Jesse. <laughs> so, to me, what he really makes a good point on is that we don't need to to come to truth with the idea that it's going to be so clear and so perfect in a formula that it doesn't also carry a paradox element to it. And speaking from my own perspective as a Western legal mind, that doesn't sit well with me. But the more I read scripture, the more I see how paradoxical, if that's even a word, our, our God is, and that he is not only so far above us, and he's not material, but then he stoops down and becomes human and loves the creation he made. And so he is, he being the second person, Jesus Christ, is fully God, fully man. And that is the true via media. That he is the link between his own creation and mm. the creator. And when it comes to weaving in the Greek philosophy into the Christian truth, you can't err on the left or on the right. You have to, you can't err in terms of, you know, cutting and pasting together. You have to see that when it comes to who Christ is, he is completely, fully, holy God, the second person of the Trinity. Completely, holy, fully, to this day, man. And I think we have a tendency to to err on, on one of those two ways, uh, even as Orthodox Christians, unintentionally most times, but of thinking about Christ being either, you know, a man who was so good, you know, the, the good great ethical, you know, teacher right. or we err on the side of like Christ is God and we forget that he is human, that his death and resurrection means that his humanity rose from the dead with him. So we, we like to talk in natural terms of like when Christ was alive, when he was on the earth, you know, well, he is still alive. His body is physically raised from the dead. He's still fully man. That's not been dissolved away and transformed into, you know, something like a ghost and uh, it just disappeared from our eyes. Sure. I'm rambling at this point, but I really like this paragraph where he draws it together about the via media being I do too. about the truth. And sometimes the truth is a paradox and we have to deal with it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I did too. This this is really this really resonated with um, a lot of my thinking over the last few years, um, it, especially because I think one of the biggest sort of sources to erroneous thinking in Christianity and and just frankly in human life is that we tend to be reductivist as you've pointed out and as more is pointing out that we if well if it's this one thing then it can't be any of these other things and 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 regardless of what the thing is there's people on on either side of any debate saying well this is what's important it's christ's divinity is what's important or christ's humanity is what's important and that's it and they're very often in these camps you have people who are um vehemently uh, supporting something that is essential to the orthodox teaching, which is his divinity or his humanity. But 
they they have they are so scared of losing that that they reduce every other factor of the teaching. You know, they make a a, a sort of a, a tower of this one doctrinal point, and then they level everything else in their theology. And you know, very often what tends to be the case in Christianity is that it's both and and not either or. Um, and this isn't true with everything. I think there's you can go the other side and become sort of universalist and say, well, all the things are true. And, and so this is not to say that, uh, you know, the, the uh, law of non-contradiction is, is, is incorrect. No, I, I, it, and I think that's kind of the important point that, that Moore is making, that this isn't just a compromise. It's not just a half measure. It's not, we're trying, we're not being uh, quote unquote gooey here about our theology and just sort of, you know, <laughs> making it up as we go in a sort of touchy feely kind of way. But, but this is actually um, a reasoned and not contrary to reason position to take, which is to say both of these things are true you're not allowed to deny either of them without destroying the truth. And if it's difficult for you to understand, or me, or anyone else, that doesn't stop it from being true, right? The paradox means that it is not contrary to reason, but that it is above reason, right? The way that this makes sense might be uh, a little further up that chain closer to the Godhead and, you know, and well, it may be well beyond what humans can comprehend. But guess what, Christian? Um, there are plenty of doctrines that we all hold or should hold that, uh, that belong way up there, you know, <laughs> right? Like, like bodily resurrection and, and, you know, the whole, the whole gamut of, of Christian orthodoxy. And so, much as we as as human beings are always trying to take the universe and uh, we, we, we're, we're doubting Thomas's basically we say well if I can't put do the math myself I just don't think it's real or I don't think it's true and uh, boy that's not a very humble or even at the end of the day reasonable stance to take when it comes to doing theology but yeah, I was I was actually legitimately um, kind of had my hair blown back by that last uh, paragraph there. So I think both of us did. <laughs> oh, absolutely! I mean, he does a fantastic job with it. He really ties up his, his points here and kind of brings it all together. Uh, to, sure. And, and, that, and this is, is yeah, and this is not necessarily to say well to believe this sort of fundamental paradoxical. Uh, that, that there are doctrines within Christianity that are paradoxical and part of the via media in this way does not necessarily mean uh, John Henry Newman was right about the Anglican Church, right? You know, some I'm sure some people are kind of, you know, hearing the via media right now, and and that's maybe the only thing that really comes to mind. And I think that um, you know more is helpful in saying that we can reclaim this notion, this sort of truth about uh, paradox, theological paradox, um, and reasonableness that, uh, that doesn't necessarily have to pertain to um, the churchmanship debates of the 19th century. I agree. He, he is, I don't know if he, 
he is reclaiming the word, but he's definitely dusting it off and taking away a lot of the negative connotations. Uh, let's move on to the, the next two paragraphs, and I'll go ahead and apologize for butchering any Latin terms I'll come across. So let's get started. <laughs> Now the dogma of the Incarnation, so conceived, is not specially Anglican, since it is held by Roman and Reformed to Anglican alike, so far as they adhere to the Catholic faith. Indeed, so far as they remain Christian. The Abbe Bardet, for instance, in a work published with the full imprimatur of Rome, concludes his account of the early Christological controversies with just such an exposition of the Voimonet, which he declares to be the criterion of Catholic Orthodoxy, not only for the mystery of the Incarnation, but for the Trinity and other dogmas, defeat The course of the Anglicans was peculiar in this, that deliberately and courageously they clung to the principle of mediation in regions of doctrine and discipline, whereas they contended the Romanist and radical Protestant did in fact stray aside into vicious extremes of exclusion. If we follow this contention through its ramifications, we shall find that it revolves around the nature of the authority and tradition of Scripture as bearing upon two main points. 1. The practical distinction between fundamentals and accessories of religion, and 2. The axiomatic rejection of infallibility. Hmm. Let me pause there for one second. I always mispronounce that word, axiomatic. That is not how you pronounce it, is it? Uh, it that, I think that's how I pronounce it, so okay. Okay. that means either you've been right or we've both been wrong. Well, that works. So. Okay. Sorry you can edit this part out, but... No, I, 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 I like the candor. Yeah, so listener, if we're both wrong, let us know. Or Is don't. It? Be kind and don't. Yeah, it's up to you. You can send your hate mail to <laughs> Jesse. Right. Right? Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. yeah we, we should actually, um, you know, set up an account just for the hate mail. You know, only yeah, all, send all the negativity to this account. And then we'll find someone with thicker skin than ourselves it may be Father Isaac then, you know. He's, Maybe. He's a priest. Yeah. He can handle it. That's what happens when you're absent, unfortunately, you know. That's right. We'll have to come up with a, a good email address. The haters Anglican yeah. Gmail. Yeah. What what you got wrong at Miserable Offenders or something, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, because I'm sure we, we have plenty to learn from our astute listeners. So uh, we are certainly not uh, claiming to be... Uh, know-it-alls, only those who are uh, on the path to know-it-all, so to speak. <laughs> Stumbling <laughs> yeah. about at times. We, but. That's right. We, we, very, we very clumsily would like to know-it-all, or at least the important bits. But um, no, I, I thought this was uh, in a, a great sort of summary or way to close the section off um, using this idea of the via media and uh, moderation, you know, he takes the context of the incarnation. He sort of says, shows how it works in the context of a of a universally received Catholic doctrine, and then he, you know, makes this statement that that for Anglicanism, this uh, is sort of consistently used in the way that the church is ordered and doctrines are addressed. Um, and Moore's claim here is that uh, it seems to be that certain on the Reformed side or on the uh, Roman Catholic side, 
um, lose their moderation when it comes to uh, specific doctrines. So, um, what do you, what do you, what's your takeaway from from all that? Well, two takeaways. One of them is for those who would be listening and are like, "This is a case of the pot calling the kettle black for Anglicanism." I, I can only imagine many a listener who's not within our tradition or who are within our tradition saying. This all sounds well and good, but look at the state of Anglican communion now. To which I would say, mm. point mm-hmm. well taken. But, but, <laughs> when it comes to Anglicanism as expressed by an adherence or a desire to follow the formularies, I say that's what our strength is. And that's one of the reasons why I am Anglican, is that it tries to avoid this erring on the side of the left or the right, of trying to err on the side of, uh, of, as he puts it, the Romanists and the radical Protestant, into vicious extremes of exclusion. And we see this in, in areas of doctrine of trying to negate one practice because it's too Romish, or from Rome of trying to uh, get rid of a, pra- well not get rid of a practice, but deny a, a doctrine because it, it is too Protestant. It, it goes too much to putting scriptures in the place of authority. Uh, for matters of salvation mm-hmm. and everything else in between, between the, the, the two the two sides, the two extremes. And so Anglicanism is a true via media, is not trying to sit in the middle and be the mean between these two radical sides, else you could end up with Arianism by splitting the baby, putting things back together, and then not having any form of orthodoxy. Right. And we see that in Anglicanism. I think we could both acknowledge that happens a lot. Uh, and sadly, the Anglican Church has had a history right. of Arians popping out. I think, I think all denominations have at this point, but uh, it's just the reoccurring heresy. <laughs> but um, I'm kind of. We've all had our fair have, share of know, Arians. It, you almost can yeah. uh, can measure yourself by how many do you have in your crowd? You know. <laughs> but, That's right. <laughs> how do you persecute your <laughs> Arians? Oh, oh really? We should try, we that, try that. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent idea. <laughs> but uh. That's right. Yeah, we kid, we kid. But um, anyways, <laughs> yeah, I, well, I think that that's a great point because um, it kind of illustrates how every strength, um, especially speaking humanly and um, on this side of heaven where um, even the church and, and uh, even divine institutions or um can or divinely instituted institutions that are led by sinful men um, can fall astray and there's every strength including the strengths of Anglicanism also have their corresponding weaknesses and so to you know my response to that first point that you made is yes but you know in the end um, and you know, Anglicanism maybe because of its particular strengths and weaknesses or its particular character was more susceptible earlier on in the 20th century to certain, and, and, and you could say there are um, things creeping in earlier, to uh, certain, you know, secularizing uh, ways of theology that have left it wide open to heresy in, in certain jurisdictions. But, you know, if you've been watching the news, the Roman church, the Eastern churches, the, the Presbyterian Church of America, you know, all of these um, conservative church bodies, 
as it turns out, even though they may do theology in a different way than we do, have sinners in them. What? <laughs> and, and and I, I think so, I know ecads, but uh, you know it. it what it really shows is that I think a lot of the changes that are made are done by people with an agenda. There are people within an institution who gain strongholds of power, and they are a minority, but they become a powerful minority, and they want things to look a certain way, and that's... You know, it's always uh, a tendency to say, well, this, well, isn't that just the way the Anglicans are? Or even, you know, maybe we should be careful when we say, isn't that just the way Roman Catholics are? Um, we can have conversations about, you know, whether we think we do theology the right way or the wrong way. We probably think we do it the right way. That's why we're Anglican. Um, but in the end, I don't think, I think it's a very dangerous track to go on to say, and, and look at the fruits of, of the way you do theology because it just, it history seems to have shown that nobody's immune in my I opinion. I would completely agree with that. Uh, the only comment that I would add is that uh, the old saying is, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. And it's like that for the traditions of the, of the Christian faith that it, it is so easy. Um, and I think that and maybe it's just perception for me that like those of us who are Orthodox within our uh, traditions judge each other so harshly on like oh look at those Lutherans you know what they're doing those Presbyterians those Anglicans etc <laughs> and really and truly those of us who are Orthodox have a lot right. more in common uh, than we do different when it comes to those other uh, groups who are rejecting the Orthodoxy of our own traditions uh, and yet <laughs> we, we find instead of going against a, a common enemy of, of proclaiming the gospel and seeking agreement where there is agreement in our traditions, we like to point out, you know, well, those Presbyterians, they like to do X, Y, Z. Those Anglicans, well, they do all these other things. And instead of looking at what, what is our foundational uh, document, you know, where do we say our doctrine comes from? You know, if we're going to judge each other, you know, and have these discussions, which we need to, let's, let's look there and right. acknowledge, like, okay, we've got extremes you know, who claim that they are so-called Anglicans, Lutherans, Methodists, you know, Presbyterians, etc. But you can't judge the book by its cover. Let's dive into the book and see what they actually believe, and then let's have conversations. Um, so it's, it's just easy to always throw those rocks uh, and forget that you're living in a glass house at the end of the day. Right, and and uh, I agree. I. Th I, I don't know what your my experience on these sorts of things has actually been that I can appreciate so much more sort of the rigorous orthodox party or partisan within each of these traditions than say those who are um, always always finding themselves out on the outs within their own tradition and you know, even if they're trying to get closer to us, it just seems like um, those folks eventually just kind of uh, have a trajectory that makes them depart from orthodoxy altogether. You know, I, we have a lot in common with, um, you know, the, the, the staunch conservative Anglican who really believes in Anglicanism has a lot in common with the staunch Lutheran who believes in Lutheranism and Presbyterian and Roman Catholic and so on. 
You know, there's we have, as you were saying, we have so much overlap at sort of the 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 Orthodox Catholic core of what we all share, and um, you know, and and at the same time, we we maybe have. Uh, something to teach or learn from one another when it comes to dealing with these more secularizing and uh, liberalizing heretical elements, you know? So uh, but I, I do think that there are some encouraging movements, at least uh, on the ecumenical provincial level. I, I know you're uh, a deacon in the ACNA, I believe. That's correct. And uh, there's been some talk uh, quite a bit of talk between the ACNA and the LCMS and, and other denominations, isn't that right? There has, and uh, obviously I'm not a, a part of those high-level discussions at all, but I keep track of them, and I find that extremely encouraging, because mm-hmm. to have a healthy and true ecumenical dialogue that's not at the expense of truth is what we need to have. I think that in this day and age, we need to be united in our orthodox fundamentals and find where those are um it's relatively easy to a certain extent just looking at the the documents the formularies of various traditions and seeing where are we united that, that's the beauty of the 39 article right. starting out with the catholic aspects of here's where we agree with the ancient church we're not deviating mm-hmm. from the faith so there's a lot that we have in common with our brothers and sisters in christ of other uh, traditions within christianity but then also be able to, to work together, uh, typically on the issues of, of morality, uh, where there's union across the board. Uh, but to keep having those theological discussions to see where is their union, uh, where are their areas of disagreement, so that we know where and how we can work together, mission together, and, uh, and spread the gospel together. Uh, it's a lot better to do it that way than trying to rework definitions and change things to, you know, turn a Lutheran into an Anglican or turn an Anglican to a Presbyterian. Um, Absolutely. Let's have, Absolutely let's have the right. discussions, let's have the disagreements, and then let's move forward uh, where we can. But hopefully, I'm a little bit optimistic that um, in terms of Anglicanism, that we have a lot to share simply uh, through the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, in the American context, it has been plagiarized, which is great, uh, by other faith <laughs> traditions uh, in Christianity, uh, it's a. I think that reflects the the greatness of the, the theological content of the Book of Common Prayer, and I think that's why ACNA's current work on creating a new prayer book in 2019 is crucial, and uh, it needs to be done right because it will be something that other traditions uh, will look at and will kindly borrow and plagiarize from. So. No pressure, but let's get it right. <laughs> right, yeah. Boy, you know, uh, liturgical um, reworking and revision is uh, is tricky stuff. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm old school. I, I like the 28 prayer book and the 1662. And we'll probably keep using those uh, even, even, you know, further on down the line. But... Um, you know, I, I do, uh, since the, the, the revision that the ACNA is doing is, is going to happen and there's a demand for it, I, I add my prayers to yours and I hope they get it right and, uh, you know, that it can be a blessing. Absolutely. Um, 
But on that note, I think uh, we'll uh, maybe should keep it at Roman numeral three and pick up on Roman numeral four here when we get the chance. Um, I've had a lot of fun talking with you today, Andrew. As always, Jesse, always good to have these conversations and to see where the text uh, is going to take us next. Absolutely. Looking forward to the next one. Take care. You too. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again today to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.